At Giant Eagle, you may have spotted the Stacker. With uncanny MyPerks ability, she stacks up the perks to choose either dollars off or up to 20% off her entire grocery bill. The Stacker, stacking up huge savings with MyPerks. Find your MyPersonality and transform your shopping into free gas and groceries. Full details at GiantEagle.com slash MyPerks. Perks cannot be earned or redeemed on select items. Restrictions apply. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Leanne Caldwell, an anchor at Washington Post Live and also co-author of the Early 202 newsletter. Joining me today is Representative Jim Clyburn of South Carolina, who is also right now the, the Democratic whip. Um, Senator, uh, Representative Clyburn, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. And to our audience, we, of course, love to hear from you. So please feel free to tweet at us if you have any questions for the congressman. So, Congressman Clyburn, uh, we are at the very end of the year, the end of the Congress. Uh, Congress is still working to try to fund the government for the remainder of the year. First, I want to ask you, there has been some deal on a framework that has been reached. Do you know how much spending, how much the government is going to spend for the rest of the year, what that number is? No, I don't. Uh, thank you very much for having me, first of all. I don't know the answer to that question simply because I understand uh, that within this framework, uh, agreements have been made on defense spending, but not on domestic spending. And now it's always a big problem for us Democrats uh to get domestic spending at a level that we think will help to make this country's greatness accessible and affordable for all of its people that's always a problem you take care of the defense and you don't take care of the domestic and that's mm -hmm. a problem for us so i don't know what it's yeah. going to be and we still could have some problems if that's not sufficient yeah so I mean, the new deadline is expected to be December 23rd, um, a week from tomorrow, assuming they pass this short-term extension. Um, so are you saying that the agreement is not set in stone, that they don't have a number yet on what is going to be spent on non-defense spending? That's my understanding. I don't know of any agreement on that. Uh, when you start talking about... Uh, uh, top lines and we don't see uh, the details, that could still be a problem. Certainly could be a problem for me. Yeah. Um, so uh, this is also the last vehicle that's supposed to leave the station um, for the year. There could be a lot of things attached to it, including potentially the Electoral Count Act. Of course, that's reforming the counting of the electoral votes to ensure that a January 6, 2021 doesn't happen again. There's two different versions. There's a Senate version and a House version. Are you supportive of the Senate version being attached to whatever government funding bill passes through Congress this year? Yes, I am supportive of that. Uh, I do believe uh, that uh, you cannot allow uh, perfect to be the enemy of good um, if they've got a good bill. Uh, is better than no bill. Uh, I think what we did on the House side is better. I usually do think that way. 
I will be uh, accept, uh, you know, appreciative of whatever they do. And getting back to this non-defense spending, the domestic spending, um, it's estimated that there's about $158 billion for defense. That was the number that was part of the annual defense authorization act. Are you going to insist that that number is equal, that it is also the same for non-defense spending? No, I don't make any insistence on anything like that. I, I think this is be fair. Uh, my whole thing is I'm always going to be for more domestic spending than we will ever get. Uh, in the last big infrastructure bill, I was for $95 billion uh, for broadband. Um, we only got $65 billion. Uh, but I'm not going to say $95 billion or nothing. If I can get $65 billion, uh, maybe we can come back and get the other $30 billion later. So same thing here. Uh, I never uh, cast myself in stone on any of these issues. I lay out what I think is the best way uh, to go, what I think is best to do, uh, and fight for it. Sometimes I win, and sometimes I lose. Mm -hmm. Democrats are in control of both houses, both chambers right now. Um, we're up against another deadline. Why wasn't Congress able to do its job to fund the government on time? Why are we in this place again? Because I think we just make a big mistake fooling around with the so-called debt limit. I have been advocating for more than 20 years now that we ought to get rid of this. No other country like ours or anything akin to it, it's got anything called a debt limit. You ought to just get rid of that and, and do what we know should be done year in and year out. Keep putting this so-called debt limit and every year raising it, it's just a bit sophomoric to me. Get rid of this notion and do what we need to do to run the country. Every other country is doing that. I think that we and one other, I believe, the only country in the world that's got a debt limit. What does it do? Why do we have it? Yeah. Do you think that it's going to be attached to this uh, government funding bill and an increase to the debt limit? I really don't know. Uh, and I don't know that. And well, there was some discussion about this some time ago, uh, but I had no idea what may be going on uh, with the Senate negotiations at, at the moment. Uh, but we aren't going to shut the government down. Uh, so if uh, it is required uh, to fund the government that is raising the debt limit, yes, I think it should be attached. There's no way for us to attach it uh, once you come back here and get out of here on time. So uh, they all attach it. Uh, and send it over, and I think we'll all uh, approve it if we can get uh, domestic spending done uh, in a fair way. Great. I want to ask you about immigration. Um, there's a lot of reporting out today about the Biden administration worried about an influx of migrants coming over the border. December 21st is the uh, when the Title 42, the health emergency rule, is going to be lifted. What is what does the Biden administration need to do 
to improve the what's happening on the border? You know, I, um, I really don't know, <clears throat> and I hate to venture an opinion about that, uh, simply because I'm not uh, in the room with all of this. I know uh, that we were uh, expecting a big surge uh, within the last several uh, hours or days, uh, and it's supposed to be a pretty uh, one bigger than we've had uh, in a while. I chatted on yesterday uh, with a gentleman who had just left the border and asked him uh, what his feelings were. This is someone who just spent some time uh, down there uh, with TSA, and he was pretty pleased with things, so with the way things are. Uh, he thought uh, a lot of humanity uh, was on display down there, uh, but I didn't get into any intricacies about what may or may not be going on uh, with this administration. We just talked about what's taking place with the human beings who are coming across the border. Now, I know they're being placed in uh, a temporary category until such time as we can uh, make a decision about what to do uh, with this legislation. Uh, I really don't have any strong opinions about it. I want to see immigration reform take place. I want to see DACA uh, made permanent. These things uh, I think we ought to do and take people out of limbo. Mm -hmm. Should the administration extend Title 42 for the time being? I don't have uh, an opinion on that, and I, uh, okay. I just will leave that up to those people who've got all the information. I'm not yeah. keeping notes on how many people may be coming across the border, or uh, when, or where they're coming from, and I'll just leave it up to them. You wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post, uh, I think it was out today, um, about COVID investigations. Um, and yeah. you are taking issue with some uh, investigations that the Republicans plan to do next year um, regarding COVID. Uh, some Republicans already released a preliminary report on the COVID origins. Do you think that COVID origins should be investigated, that that should be a priority for Republicans when they take control of Congress next year? I don't know whether it should be a priority for Congress uh, under the Republicans. Look, that kind of investigation needs to be done by the proper people, the scientists, the people who dealing this day in and day out, our intelligence community. That's who should be doing this. This is a federal, a, a national government in China. And for us, a subcommittee, not even a full committee, this is a select subcommittee, got no authority to do anything. So what should, why should we spend our time investigating the origin of this. That is sophomoric at best. Wow job, and it's right there, was to oversee the monies that's being appropriated to make sure that PPP loans and other monies appropriated by the Congress, that that money is spent efficiently, effectively, and equitably.
we are there. They want your attention on the origin of this while their friends fleece the government. We had one group, what's that, Kodak? They make great cameras. So why would we give them $750 billion or $50 million to do um, medical stuff? We stopped that. $109 million from nursing homes that they should not have got. We got that money back. We have been doing what we're supposed to do. So we're going to be talking about the origin while these people fleece the government. We are not in that business. Let the scientists and the intelligence community study that. Find out where it came from, how it got into human beings. But for the select subcommittee, we were patterned after the Truman Committee after World War II uh, yeah. that went into business in order to keep people from fleecing the government as happened after World War One. Republicans are going have you know had made no secret of the fact that they plan to investigate the Biden the Biden administration, including uh, his son Hunter and his business dealings. Should the Biden administration should the White House cooperate with these investigations and respond to requests for documents, requests to testify, and subpoenas? If it makes sense, yes. If it doesn't make sense, no. And I don't think a lot of this makes sense. They're worried about Hunter Biden's uh, laptop, and they need to be worried about people's pocketbooks. We need to worry about people's ability to improve their lives, plan for their children, and get their communities safe and sound. We cannot, and I hope the American people will allow, allow these people to get them focused on things that don't make sense. Now, maybe they can't read uh, as well as I can, and I think I can read voting patterns pretty well. And I think that what we saw on November 8th was a rejection of that foolishness. And I think that if they want to keep going down that rabbit hole, go ahead. But for the fact that I'm in the business of trying to improve people's lives, I will let them and hope that they stay going at it and they'll pay daily for it uh, on election day. So, Congressman, I'm told that you have to go to votes, but I'm going to ask you one question, if you can answer very quickly, and that is, uh, are you confident that President Biden is going to run for re-election? I'm hopeful that he will. Mm -hmm. I'm hopeful. Great. He has not asked me, but if he were to ask me, I would say, run, Joe, run. Why? Because you have demonstrated with this administration that you know the American people, his rescue act, his infrastructure bill, his science and chips bill, inflation reduction, pack act for our soldiers in Afghanistan and Iraq and all the way back to Vietnam with ancient arms, safer communities act. We have done more under his administration than was done since the administration of uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson. And to cap this off, 
I've said to him time and time again, time and circumstances line you up well with the administration of Harry Truman. And please, if you were to run, look at Harry Truman in 1948 and look at what this Congress, this next Congress is going to do and run against these two nothing Republicans like Harry did, and the result would be the same. Uh, Representative Clyburn, we are out of time. We have to cut it a few minutes short because you have to do your day job and go vote. Um, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. And we will be back in a few moments talking to two influential pol economic policy experts. Stay with us. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. This year has arguably been one of the most consequential in recent memory for issues related to gender justice. I'm Ruth Umo, leadership editor at Fortune, and I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Boteak, vice president for income security, childcare, and early learning with the National Women's Law Center, one of the leading national organizations fighting for gender equality with a particular focus on women and girls. Melissa, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Well, Melissa, we are in what is known as the quote unquote lame duck session, which on its face sounds ineffectual, but in fact is an incredibly important time. Can you give us a brief breakdown of what this time period is and what's on the line for gender justice issues? Sure. Well, essentially, the lame duck uh, describes the time period between the election and the start of a new Congress. And in this case, uh, control is shifting in the House of Representatives from Democrats to Republicans, which means Democrats in Congress are in a race to the finish line to get as much done as they possibly can uh, before the new Congress is sworn in in January. And there's a lot on the line for gender justice, um, because as much as was accomplished in the last two years by this Congress, um, there's a number of things that need to be resolved in the next few weeks, and time is ticking. So first and foremost, uh, Congress every year passes a spending bill, um, and this includes just funding our government, and it's supposed to be addressing core functions like childcare, housing, um, all the things that we think of government uh, in the annual appropriations process. Well, Congress has to make a decision about whether or not they're going to actually have a bipartisan agreement on a year on a bill that's going to fund the government next year or just flat fund things um, in a, what's called a continuing resolution, which amounts to basically a cut. Um, and so we're pushing uh, for them to really think holistically about funding the government, especially because a lot of our priorities like childcare and early learning um, for women and girls are involved in that bill. Uh, secondly, um, there is the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act. So this is a bipartisan bill that essentially makes sure that pregnant women can uh, be healthy and have healthy and safe pregnancies and at the same time uh, keep and do all of their jobs. Uh, and so this is another piece of legislation that's sort of in a race to get wrapped up before the end of the year. Uh, we also have ahead of us the debt ceiling. Um, and so this is should be a fairly routine vote about whether or not um, we are going to pay our bills as the U.S. government. Um, but traditionally in the past few years, it's become a little bit of political football um, with hostage taking about whether or not um, there's going to be forced uh, cuts or other kinds of actions if the government does not 
or if the Congress does not vote to pass that bill. And so Congress really needs to take care of that uh, before the new the new session. And then finally, um, there's a big tax conversation happening right now. And wrapped up in that is uh, the fate of some improvements to the child tax credit, which have dramatically slashed child poverty and meant that 19 million kids and their families have been able to breathe a little bit easier, pay their rent, um, make sure that they can put food on the table. Uh, this was a provision that was in place uh, during the American Rescue Plan uh, expired. And now we really need to make sure that we fight in this at year end battle to get it back into place. Yeah. To your point, we've moved the needle on certain aspects and regress on others. So let's look at the year in review and certainly into 2023. The Law Center and other partners have been leading the fight to fix the broken child care system in this country. What are you proud of achieving this year for women and families, but also what's left to do? So I think we're incredibly proud that uh, Congress passed historic relief for child care. Uh, so even before the pandemic, uh, child care was in a state of crisis. Uh, providers are earning poverty wages for taking care of our children. Um, and the parents are struggling to afford the price of child care because we've taken what should be a public good um, and made it uh, something that is a an individual burden. And so part of that is that um, the relief dollars that were in the um, that were in the American Rescue Plan stabilized the sector, uh, and every single state benefited from these um, from these dollars. Now those dollars are set to expire next year in September of 2023 and September of 2024. If we don't find a way to build on those stabilization dollars, we're going to see uh, the childcare sector back again in an even worse crisis than it was before the pandemic. And this has implications for everyone, whether or not you have children or not, uh, because we're seeing a nursing shortage, we're seeing a teacher shortage. All these workers out there that rely on childcare, if they can't find it, uh, we're gonna see the ripple effects for families, communities, and the economy. Uh, and so part of the unfinished business is making sure that we address those cliffs, uh, making sure that we fund childcare in that year-end appropriations bill that I spoke about, and then finally making sure that we get back to business on uh, what should have been passed as part of the Build Back Better legislation in terms of a long-term transformational investment in our childcare system. There are still so many gaps to plug. What should be priority number one for the new Congress? So the new Congress um, in the Senate in particular has an opportunity to confirm judges. We need to confirm more judges, um, as well as to make sure that we're preserving reproductive rights and freedom. Um, those it, abortion and reproductive rights were on the ballot in 2022, and we need to see Congress be responsive to the, um, to the voters. Mm -hmm. And what issues are you expecting the new Congress to tackle? And more importantly, what does accountability even look like? So one of the things Congress has to do next year is, um, in addition to making sure that they confirm judges and advance reproductive rights and freedom, address the child care cliffs, uh, make sure that they make those changes to the child tax credit if they don't get to it in the lame duck. Um, and in general, we need to see them being responsive to the demands for, um, for that, that women made in the past election, which is uh, investing in care infrastructure, protecting reproductive rights, um, and ensuring that we can have a more equitable recovery. Yeah. Well, it's December. We've got just two weeks left in this year, and it's admittedly been a tough one. But I know NWLC works to center joy in all that you do. So what has brought you joy this year uh, that you're taking forward? So one of the things that brings me joy is you know, when you talk to people who are directly impacted by these policies, they're not giving up. Um, and so even though there were setbacks this past year, including with some of the care 
uh, priorities not being included in the Build Back Better um, in reconciliation bill. The families that I've spoken to, the childcare providers that I've spoken to, um, they're organizing, they're continuing to fight, and I take a lot of uh, joy and inspiration from them. Yeah. Well, women caregivers are not only the backbone of families, they're also the bedrock of the nation uh, in many regards. So here's looking to continued progress in 2023. Thank you, Melissa, for your time. And now back to Washington Post Live. Welcome back to Washington Post Live. I'm Leanne Caldwell, anchor at Washington Post Live, co-author of the Early 202 newsletter. Now joining me for the second part of our program is former chair of the Council of Economic Advisors, Glenn Hubbard, and president of the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, Maya McGinnis. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and the timing is so perfect that we are talking to you guys at the end of the congressional year um, at a, a tumultuous time in our economy. So thank you so much for joining. I really appreciate it. A reminder that we want to hear from our audience. So if you have any questions, feel free to tweet at us. Um, so Glenn, I want to talk to uh, ask you first about um, just the state of the economy. Yesterday, the Fed increased interest rates again. Um, is this working to control inflation and is it working on the broader impacts of the economy? Well, it's a great question. I think it is working in the sense the Fed is making progress. But, you know, an old saying in economics, the Milton Friedman and their long and variable lags in monetary policy. So it's going to take a while to work. The Fed's job is not yet done. Inflation remains a very big problem in the economy. And Apropos of our discussion here, it's very related to fiscal policy, too. Part of the inflation problem we had was a fiscal policy that had aggregate demand levels growing too fast. So the Fed has a challenge, and part of that challenge is actually in Washington. Part of the challenge is, I'm sorry, you said Washington? In Washington, meaning the, the growth in aggregate demand from excessive spending uh, partly at the end of the Trump administration and certainly in the American Rescue Plan has been problematic. So as we discuss the lame duck session and spending levels, let's remember that it's only making the Fed's job harder to the extent that we push aggregate demand too hard. Uh, Chair Powell is right. This is not going to be pain free. Um, and so, Maya, do you think that uh, the government, the Congress should tighten its belt? It's right now negotiating a massive end of the year spending bill to fund the government, something that's necessary to do uh, for the rest of the fiscal year until September 30th. Um, they're talking about $860 billion for defense. Um, we don't yet know what they're talking about for for domestic spending. Um, what you know, do they need to to restrict the spending to help the economy? Yeah, thank you. It's a great question. And it's really nice to be with you on the show, which I think is an excellent show. Um, yeah, I agree with Glenn. Let me start by taking a step back and saying it is preposterous that we are talking about how to fund the government now, many months into the fiscal year, right? Our budget, budget process is so broken that we don't budget anymore. This is This is like the 26th year, I believe we found that we have not passed these appropriation bills on time. And in fact, the budget committees did not even come out with budgets this year. This is no way to run a small company, let alone a country. So it's clear that we have to change the way we do budgeting in the first place so that we are dealing with these, wrestling with these issues in an appropriate time, not at the last minute. 
And then to your point about where we are in the economy and how fiscal policy plays in, this is a very tricky moment. When you are stuck between high levels of inflation, there's been some recent minorly good news, but still it is a bad situation where we are with inflation and the risk of going into a recession. There are a lot of considerations in monetary policy and fiscal policy. What you want to do in terms of fiscal policy is not make the problem worse. And the way that you do that is by creating more demand, putting more money into the economy. And so, yes, this is a time where not only do we need to worry about our borrowing because we have debt that is at near record levels. This is this is the only time the only time that the debt as a share of GDP was higher than it is right now is right after World War Two. So we are in a bad debt situation, but more immediate is the fact that exacerbating that from more borrowing actually makes the inflation challenge worse. And so given how many members of Congress you have saying inflation is the number one economic problem we're trying to address, anybody who is about to vote for new borrowing is going to make that inflationary situation worse. Well, Glenn, I, Democrats would obviously argue against what both of you guys are saying, saying that this this money was absolutely necessary. We are in a global pandemic. The government was shut down the economy. People needed assistance. We're still seeing challenges in the workforce with uh, some people not coming back to work. So, Glenn, should, you know, hindsight is different than in the moment and looking ahead. But do you think that it was a mistake that the government pumped so much money into the economy um, during a global pandemic? Well, I think you have to break it up into phases. So the CARES Act, which was the first big piece of legislation, was very good in many respects. It was the follow-on additions, particularly the American Rescue Plan, that I think economists on both sides of the political spectrum have said was simply too large. In fact, I don't know of too many people who think it was not. And so the question is not digging the hole any further, and that, I think, is the problem. So I don't think it takes too much Monday morning quarterbacking here. I think a number of us at the time said that's just too big. But it doesn't mean all fiscal policy is bad. You know, the CARES Act at the beginning, a very reasonable foundation. So you don't want to ignore the pandemic, but you don't want to make the Fed's job worse. And that's where we are now. Well, Maya, um, government spending has been a problem, not just for, you know, or it has increased, I should say. I shouldn't call it a problem, but it has increased during the Biden administration, during the Trump administration, um, during the Obama administration, during the Bush administration, um, the Clinton administration, you know, was uh, balanced the budget. So, you know, it's been 20 years. Um, so what, you know, is this, this is not a partisan issue. Um, how does that need to change? Yeah, that's a great point. And let me start by making a distinction between government spending and government borrowing. So government spending has more to do with the size of government. And what can actually be fiscally responsible and want a lot of government spending? It just means, are you willing to pay for it? So from our organization, which is nonpartisan, I'm a political independent, <clears throat> excuse me, we look at this issue as not whether you're spending more or cutting taxes, but whether you're willing to offset those things so that you're not adding to the borrowing. And the borrowing, of course, creates big problems in that it slows economic growth, lowers our standard of living, makes us more dependent on borrowing from abroad, which can be at odds with our foreign policy, leaves us poorly prepared for the next economic emergency. So there are a lot of reasons to avoid excessive borrowing. 
spending is more about the size of government. That will be ideological differences that will always persist. Um, and there are also times where you should be borrowing. And as you all just discussed, borrowing for COVID was absolutely appropriate. We needed to do that. It was necessary to fill in the huge gaps in the economy. At the end, the American Rescue Plan was excessive and it fueled a fi uh, uh, inflation. And there were many of us warning at the time, this is more money than you should put into the economy. But if you take that apart, many uh, all the bipartisan spending bills, borrowing bills that worked um, to fight COVID were absolutely important at the moment. The issue is now we're in a very different place in our economy. We no longer have an economic struggle from the pandemic. We in fact are dealing with inflation. So you have to kind of reverse your fiscal policies. Secondly, none of that is to cast judgment on the specific policies. Uh, you said many Democrats would disagree with these points. I actually think many Democratic lawmakers, and I talk to them all the time, understand that borrowing is bad for the debt and bad for the inflation. I think the problem here, and as you have said, this, this excessive borrowing has been absolutely bipartisan. This administration has borrowed uh, almost $5 trillion in new borrowing since they've been there. The Trump administration borrowed over $7 trillion when the economy didn't call for it. Um, so this is, this is a bipartisan problem that really where we are is politicians no longer try to pay for their priorities. They say what they want, and then they come up with a storyline for why they shouldn't pay for it. It may be, don't worry, tax cuts will pay for themselves. It may be, don't worry, we can just print more money. I think a pretty debunked theory now, but one that was in vogue for a couple of years because it's free lunch economics. And what we really hear right now at the end of the year spending bill, where not only are we looking at double digit increases, we are looking at a lot of possible things being tacked on from tax cuts to healthcare spending to retirement spending. What you're hearing from both sides of the aisle is my priority is too important to pay for. The same politicians understand we're borrowing too much. They understand it's bad for inflation, but we are frankly absolutely out of practice of ever trying to pay for something. If something's worth doing, and there are a lot of things that people are talking about in this end of the year package that I would say are worth doing. But if something's worth doing, you then decide how you're going to pay for it. Are you going to raise taxes? Are you going to cut spending? Or are you going to borrow? And right now, if you're choosing to borrow, you're putting dangerous pressure on the debt. You're pushing inflation up and you're basically saying to younger workers in the next generation, hey, we don't want to pay for it. So we're going to do it, but we're going to have you pay for it. And that's not a sustainable fiscal policy. And as you said, it's been going on for many, many years now. Mm -hmm. Glenn, many economists said that the you know, we were headed into a recession. Um, are we still headed into a recession? I think we are likely to see a recession in 2023 as the Fed's policy continues to work to constrain demand. You know, it's fairly straightforward to get inflation down to say 4% just as supply chain issues resolve themselves. But if Chair Powell really means two, that's gonna take a significant restraint of demand and a significant increase in unemployment. So I, I think while a recession isn't baked in a cake, it's certainly more likely than not. And Maya, do you have an opinion about that? What do you think? Yeah, I, I agree with that. The unfortunate thing is, that is just what Glenn said, that you can get down to 4% pretty much naturally. A lot of things are going to do, a lot of problems will be fixed and the aggressive um, and I think productive actions of the Fed will help that. But it's those last 2% that may be very difficult. I think there's a, a problem here, which is uh, inflation really causes harm, particularly on low income families. And it's very painful. And there's a desire to give as much help as possible. 
But the problem is all of those forms of help, uh, whether it's wage increases or subsidies for gas or different things that have been talk we've been talking about for a while in the in DC, all of those things actually fuel inflation. So when you're trying to get in front of inflation, what you want is people to spend less and save more and the government to spend less and save more. Um, and that's at odds with actually helping people. So there's some real tensions here and politicians aren't very good at explaining those tensions because again, they're kind of eager to do the free lunch route whenever possible. But the more that we exacerbate the problem through excessive borrowing, the harder it makes the job of the Fed the Fed will have to raise interest rates even more to fight that inflation. That is more likely to put us in recession. And so there are a lot of tensions here. This is why you don't want to get into an inflationary environment in the first place. Um, but the Fed definitely has challenges if it really wants to get back to that 2% a goal. Glenn, do you agree? Is there more that the Biden administration can do? Well, the old expression of when you're in a hole, stop digging. So I think it would imply some fiscal restraint that is not putting in overly ambitious fiscal spending plans. I agree with Maya. There are lots of things we would like government to do, probably even more. I would add to the list education and training and aid to places left behind. We also have to make some choices and figure out what else would we stop doing or do less of. That's the conversation I think that would be helpful, but certainly stop the excessive spending in the middle of an inflation problem. Maya, I want to ask you about congressional gridlock. You kind of you touched on this earlier on. Um, you know, as you pointed out, we're in the last two weeks of um, the years, the as far as working is concerned on Capitol Hill. Um, it's been difficult for them to find agreement on funding bills spending bills, funding bills. Um, it's only gonna get worse next year uh, with the Republican-led House of Representatives. So what is your advice to Congress to ensure that they're able to fund the government on time? And um, do you have any advice on the debt limit, a fight that is sure to happen next year if they don't solve it this year? Yeah, I mean, you're touching on what I think is the single biggest problem in the country right now, which is the high levels of polarization and the division and dysfunction and distrust that that has led to. Um, and in fact, we have built an additional project at the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget called Fix Us that's just looking at how we got to this moment of such high levels of polarization, because you can't tackle any of the important issues when our two parties are more busy trying to beat each other up and talking about us and them instead of the country. You can't tackle any of the hard issues. And the debt is really one of the hardest issues. The reason is the fixes for the fiscal situation that we're in are things politicians don't like. Here's the reality. We have to raise taxes and we have to cut spending. The problem is so big, we have to do both of them to really tackle this problem in a way that doesn't create huge problems for us both economically and from a geopolitical sense. And so this, this lack of um, the ability to get things done, there's, been, there's actually been some good bipartisan work this year where they accomplished a lot of things, but every one of those bipartisan bills wasn't paid for. And so I would say the one exception when it's, you can get bipartisan legislation is if the end result isn't, like Glenn just said, figuring out the trade-offs of what you wanna do, and I agree with him, more human capital, for instance, something we should do, what you wanna do and how you pay for it. The only way that they seem to get to yes is if the answer is, I know, we'll do something Republicans wanna do and not pay for that, and also something Democrats wanna do 
and not pay for that. And that's what I think we're going to see in this end of the year bill. The debt ceiling is separate. And it's, of course, this very risky situation where if our leaders aren't able to lift the debt ceiling on time, it will create absolute chaos, not just in our economy, but globally. Um, the debt ceiling in the past, looking back a number of years, decades, in fact, used to be used productively. When we hit the debt ceiling, uh, we also, when we increased it in a timely manner, we also would usually add different things, either policies or processes, which would help control additional borrowing. And the debt ceiling, by the way, is just saying, I'm going to pay for the bills of legislation that borrowed that we already approved. So you have to increase it. But at the same time, you could say, well, how are we going to try to get a hold of not borrowing so much? What new things could we do? And we used to do that routinely. Then there was a huge period, a damaging period, where it really looked as though some people might not vote to increase it. We could default. That should never be contemplated. It was very disruptive. The problem that we've seen more recently is we do lift the debt ceiling. But at the same time, in four out of the six past debt ceiling increases, we also put in policies that increased the debt, that borrowed even more, hundreds of billions of dollars, in fact. So what mm -hmm. I think we should do with the debt ceiling is return to the way we're used to do it. We should lift it immediately. We should have lifted it yesterday. We should lift it today. We should lift it in January, whatever. We should not wait until the last moment. And we should try yeah. to attach maybe a process that would help improve the situation, not make it worse, and not threaten default. Glenn, do you agree? Should, should Congress do something to get rid of the debt limit? There's talks about, you know, a permanent extension or something that just automatically lifts. Um, should Congress go that route so it's not a fight every time? It shouldn't be a fight. And uh, I certainly agree with Maya. This should have been done already. Uh, we cannot hold the nation hostage to this. I think a better route is to let the debt ceiling be a way to bring people to the table, as Maya was suggesting. If Congress can't be responsible in that regard, then no, we shouldn't have the debt ceiling constraining the country. I think that talking longer term about slow changes in fiscal policy is the way to go. You know, we did this once successfully. The Social Security reforms of the 1980s happened gradually over decades. We need to have that kind of conversation again. Fortunately, the temperature in the Congress is, shall we say, a little bit high right now for having that conversation. Mm -hmm. And Glenn, I want to ask you about the global ramifications, the war in Ukraine on the economy. Um, how do you see this playing out this winter? Well, it's very interesting. It's certainly going to be a problem in Europe, obviously most important for the people of Ukraine who are suffering from Russia's attacks. But throughout Europe, through high energy prices, through elevated public spending that's required to help Ukraine and to cushion domestic economies, and in this country, we see it both through energy markets and through supply chains, as well as America's own role in the world. Longer term, this raises a big question for us militarily about relationships with autocratic countries. It also raises questions for business about supply chains. Does it make sense to have open global supply chains in a world of geopolitical disruption? I think we're going to see a lot more of this conversation in 2023, whatever the pace of the war in Ukraine is. Mm -hmm. And Maya, we're almost out of time, but quickly, what do you think that the biggest threat to the global economy is? Well, I think in the immediate, what Glenn was talking about, I think we're going to see a pullback from openness in our global economy, and it's going to be more done regionally. The kinds of uh, diminished open trade, open borders is going to lead to higher inflation, I think, in the 
medium term. So we're going to see more of that. I think the absolute biggest threat that we have is the new kinds of warfare that there are with um, with countries where there's tension, where we have all sorts of new threats from cyber to bio to disinformation. And all of these things, I worry about the debt, but I worry about the debt because it's the underpinning of a global economy and it's the underpinning of our national security. And we can't deal with all the challenges we have, whether it's the need for a new social contract that's horribly outdated or the aging of the population or all of these new threats and the big tensions that are going on around the world, they will have economic effects as well as security effects. And our high levels of debt leave us dangerously unprepared to deal with them. So I have a lot of concerns, uh, but the fiscal situation makes it harder to deal with all of them. Glenn, Maya, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you joining me. Thank you, thank pleasure. You. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.